As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sipple Jr. So thank you for joining us today to this very exciting recording at the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, where we help you succeed in leadership, business, community, and life. I have the distinct pleasure of uh, sitting down and talking to today the CEO of Unbridled Talent, the CEO of Disrupt HR, the host of the Impact Makers podcast, more importantly, my friend, my mentor, Jennifer McClure. Well, thank you, Mike. I I like listening to all my titles. I'm going to see if I can add a few more. There you go. (laughs) Maybe after today, we can do that. We can do that. So Jennifer, I'm really excited. I've had the opportunity to work with you personally um, for many years now, right? Having you on our team here at Centennial, being your advocate, being your cheerleader for all the great things you've been doing the last many years. Can you share with us a little bit, just for those listening, um, walk us through kind of your corporate career experience, what led you into consulting, I think, um, and then also then what kind of catapulted you into starting your own business and speaking all over the world to millions of people? Millions and millions of people. <laughs> um, well, I started, I get asked that question a lot. And so I, I should be getting hopefully better at telling the story. You know, how did I want to start my business started way back when I was in my corporate career. So I spent about 20 years as a leader and executive in human resources. But about 10 years into that, I was working in a Japanese automotive company. And we had someone that we had, you know, contracted with to come in and do some training for us on the exciting topic of union avoidance. Um, You know, and he he did it every year. He was great. Um, And it was a gentleman that owned a consulting firm in Tennessee. um, But he was in his 70s and had worked at General Motors in industrial relations for, I think, 45 years or more. So even union avoidance training, which wasn't super exciting, he was able to make fun and exciting because he had great stories. So he made us laugh. He kept people interested and engaged. And I remember sitting in there again, it's probably in the late 90s, sitting in the audience and thinking, I want to do what he does. I love the idea of teaching people and helping them to learn, but I also love that he's got such great stories. And, you know, I'm 10 years into my career. I don't have enough stories. I don't know that I can wait 45 years, but um, maybe 20 years. So I just kind of set an arbitrary number out there that after 20 years of uh, corporate life that I'd probably go out and start my own business. And I didn't really, you know, go any farther than that into what that would look like. Um, So what ultimately happened about 18 and a half years into my corporate career, the company I worked for was sold. And, you know, as often happens, the executives are changed out. And I was eventually uh, invited to to change out. Um, And I had an opportunity at that time. I had been in a lot of high growth environments and um, startups and really was tired. You know, I was coming off of a turnaround situation, which we had successfully done. And uh, so I really wasn't super excited about the idea of going back into the corporate world. And I think I'd probably even forgotten about, you know, the 20 year mark of starting my own business. And it just so happened that I received during that time when I knew Knew my job was going to be ending. Somebody that was in my um, Sunday school class at church forwarded me an email from Mike Sipple Jr. at Centennial Inc. 
a search email looking for someone for a CIO position, which obviously not related to me. I, you know, no, no one had ever forwarded me an email like that from my Sunday school class before. And I, at the time, had never heard of Centennial Inc. So being in human resources, I'm like, I should know these people. They're recruiters in Cincinnati. And so I went to the website and found, uh, you know, read about Centennial and, and what they do. And uh, there was a page on there about career coaching. Uh, and at the time, there was a gentleman here named Mike Lynch who was a career coach. Um, and I had never heard of a career coach, but I knew that I probably needed one because <laughs> I was about to be unemployed and I had really done nothing to prepare for it. But I kind of thought, well, maybe I am going to start my own job. So I need someone to tell me how awesome I am and how I'll be great at starting my own business. And to my mind, that was a coach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I talked to my CEO and I said, you know, outplacement is wonderful, uh, but I actually want to spend my money from exiting the company on a coach. And he was like, whatever you want, you know, what, whatever you think will help you succeed. So I engaged Mike Lynch and Centennial as my career coach without ever having, again, met anyone here or uh, met a career coach. So I think it was kind of divine intervention is what I, I like to say. So started working with Mike, uh, took a couple months off uh, to kind of just decompress because like a lot of people, I thought, well, I'll just get a job. You know, once I say I'm available, you know, people Everybody will be will hiring. Everybody will come running, yes. <laughs> So I can take some time off and just ride horses and have fun. Um, and so started with Mike, I think, in December 2015 and really kind of right away got smacked in the face with uh, I had not really worked through kind of what I wanted to do next. And Mike, Mike's process was really about creating a marketing plan for yourself and going out and kind of testing the market and talking to people. And I'm very introverted. And even though I'm a people person by day and that's always been my job, uh, I am not typically the one to call people up and say, can we, you know, can we have coffee or talk or, you know, it's just never been me and, and going to networking events at the time wasn't a thing. So, you know, we did my marketing plan and he told me I needed to pick kind of two or three things to talk about. And I was like, well, I want to start my own business. I'm here for you to tell me how awesome I am. Right. And he was like, well, that can be one, uh, consulting, um, but pick a couple others, you know, like human resources, which you've always done, recruiting, which you've done as part of your role in human resources. And I'm like, okay, so those are three things I could potentially talk to people about. So he kind of helped me get on the path to going out and meeting with people. And, and thankfully, because I, I had to be put on the remedial path, um, I claimed I didn't know anyone. And so I got sent to Mike Sipple Sr., uh, you know, the, the CEO owner of Centennial at the time, to start my get-to-know-people strategy. And Mike gave me three names of people to talk to. Um, and he, of course, talked to me and, and listened and gave me some great advice. And from there, it just built. My goal was to get three names every time I talked to someone to keep kind of this path going. And, and I quickly realized right away the value in going out and connecting with really smart, wonderful, helpful people who also know smart, wonderful, helpful people. And so I was meeting with those kind of people and they were referring me to those kind of people. And just because I'm curious and because I wasn't really, I think I had an advantage because I wasn't really looking for a job because in my mind, I still thought I might start my own business. So I wasn't in that position of need, like help me get a job. I was in the position of tell me how you got where you are. 
Um, how did you start your own consulting company? How did you become a senior leader in this organization? What is it like to be, you know, a female leader uh, in, a, in an organization that, you know, maybe doesn't have a lot of other female leaders? So it was really an opportunity to have great conversations. Um, and through that, I got great advice. And so many helpful people said, wow, Jennifer, it's great that you are, you know, out looking for your next opportunity, but please don't start your own business. You're not ready. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I yeah. thought this whole process was to validate me and tell me that I'm super ready to do what I don't even know what I want to do. And, and such, such great advice. And I thank all of the people that I talked with every day, because had I you know, put up my own shingle and starting my own business, I would be like so many other people, I would have failed. Because I did not know what I wanted to do. I did not have a marketing plan. I didn't know how to sell myself. I'd never done business development. And thankfully, people called that out, you know, they, they recognized that. And so I would say, well, if I'm ready to start my own business, what do you think, you know, based off of what you know about me that I should do? And so many people said recruiting. And I was like, recruiting, I don't like recruiters. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Now Mike's looking at me like, oh, no. No, we won you over. I know we won you over. <laughs> well, and, and again, smart, wonderful people said, well, why don't you like recruiters? I'm like, well, I don't like cold calling. I don't like people that don't have a relationship with me telling me that they know exactly what I need in my, you know, the positions I'm hiring for. I don't like the transactional nature of it. And, and they heard me out and they said, well, what do you think all recruiters are like that? And I said, I don't know. And they said, well, what if you could find... Um, a recruiting firm that doesn't do that. And I said, please, I'd love to meet them. And they're like, hey, guess what? You're already working with them. (laughs) (laughs) It's the folks at Centennial Inc. And this is not a commercial necessarily for Centennial. This is my story. Um, So I came back again, back to the remedial path, met with Mike Sipple Sr. And I said, you know, a lot of people are suggesting that I go into executive recruiting as kind of a next step in my career. Uh, that I'm not ready to start my own business. And uh, they've kind of all directed me back to you. And and Mike is my balcony person, um, a true servant leader. I love how he sees potential in everyone and gives people an opportunity. You know, he doesn't say, well, based off what I know about you, this is not a fit. Uh, he said, well, if if you are willing to try this, and he sent me home to do some homework about, you know, thinking about obviously changing from a corporate mindset to kind of a, it really is kind of running your own business within the recruiting firm. Um, and so he made me think about some things and I had to come back and give him some answers. And, and I came back and he said, if you're ready, we're ready. I just need you to know that human resources people don't often succeed in this type of business because they are used to having all the control of the process. And we don't have control of the process. So that might be something that you'll need to pay attention to. And he was so right. And again, a lot of reason why I didn't value recruiters before was because I was trying to control the process. Um, I've learned a lot about all the mistakes I made in the corporate world since I've, <laughs> since I've been out of it. Um, so came and really uh, surprisingly, you know, came to learn, quote, business development relationship building in a way that I could stomach it as an introvert, you know, more of a person wanting to build relationships rather than to acquire clients, um, came with the hope of learning from Mike Sipple Sr. and ultimately ended up learning just as much from you, um, who was very young at the time. I still don't think you've ever told me how old you are. Um, <laughs> but when I came here, you were you were just a youngster. Our 1,000th <laughs> episode, we will release that secret. <laughs> still don't know. You're still very young. Um, 
but you had already obviously learned from from your father and and had a lot of talent yourself and so I learned so much um, during my almost four years here at Centennial full-time as an, an executive recruiter about again I, I didn't I probably made less than a handful of quote cold calls um, I learned how to really connect with people, to, again, use that curiosity to build relationships, uh, be genuinely interested, because I am, um, and then have people want me to help them bring leaders into their organization and really valuing the centennial process of understanding, you know, making the right fit, not just here's the job description, go get me somebody with all of these skills and this current job title in this industry, but really going into the organization and understanding the leadership and the culture and what the goals were for the position and making those types of matches. And that's invaluable experience that, um, without that divine intervention in that one email about that CIO search would never have happened. Um, and from the beginning, Mike Sr. always said to me, Jennifer, if you can be successful in this business, you can do it on your own. You know, my job and my goal as the CEO of Centennial Inc. is to create a company and a culture where even though you can go out and do it on your own, you want to do it here. And I think that's exactly what the centennial culture is like. And so I did want to do recruiting here. I never thought about doing that on my own. But I started, uh, I had learned during that time of meeting with people how valuable it was to have other people helping you and being willing to help you. And I remember at an ExecuNet meeting hearing an executive talk about, you know, his former job search and how many people had also been helpful to him. And he shared that, he decided once he got a job to give away 10% of his time because so many people had been helpful to him. And I had heard that before I started at Centennial and I kind of thought, well, I want to do that too. So when I started here, in addition to executive recruiting, I tried to quote, give away some of my time meeting with senior level executives in transition um, just to listen to them about their job search, look at their resume, to hear what they were struggling with, to be ultimately a safe place where we tend to think of senior leaders as, you know, and they tend to think of themselves as I've got this, you know, I've, I've held the title, I've rung the bell and, you know, the company was sold or we had a reduction in force, whatever I'm out now. And, um, you know, they're still trying a lot of times to portray that invulnerability. But when you are able to build their trust and to gain their trust, they're often very vulnerable because nobody's a professional job searcher. Um, so in those conversations was able to try to add value in a safe way and, and to, to be someone that they could trust. And at the time, this was early 2006, LinkedIn was relatively new. I had started on it. Um, and so I would pull up my, you know, turn my computer around in the office and say, why don't we get you started on LinkedIn? You know, here's how you can connect with people and here's how you can get, you know, your, your profile out there for people to see. And that turned into those leaders then who were involved in maybe, you know, job search support groups or other networking organizations saying, hey, why don't we have Jennifer come in and speak to our group? Mm-hmm. Um, and then many of them got, you know, got jobs and became employed as, you know, C-level leaders or leaders in their organizations. And they said, I would like for you to come in and talk to my HR team or my recruiting team or our leadership team about, you know, LinkedIn or the networking process and what you learned in it or just hiring in general. And, and so it's kind of that, again, you know, the, the intentions that we put out there, I wanted to start my own business many years earlier as a speaker, as a trainer, as a consultant. Um 
then I kind of forgot that along the way. But it started happening simply because I had begun to share what I know. You know, I was helping people with the knowledge that I had and sharing that with them that they then invited me to start speaking. And that was not really something that I had intentionally put up a shingle again and said, I want to be a speaker. And sooner or later, uh, you know, I was doing that enough again with Centennial support. Um, it became something I said, well, I got to start charging a little money because it's taken me away from my, my quote, day job. Um, and so over time, just built up a little bit of speaking business. And then in late 2009, I kind of said, you know, I love the people at Centennial, but Mike Sr. told me he'd support me if I ever wanted to start my own business, and I think I'm ready. Um, I already had some speaking clients and already had a consulting client or two that, again, through Centennial. Um, and so I talked to Mike Sr., and I said, I think I'm ready. And he said, let me know how I can help. So uh, February 9th, 2010, stepped out and Unbridled Talent was born. And then for the next six months, I wandered around in the wilderness because uh, I still didn't know how to start my own business. Um, but I did have some clients. I did have a little bit of a brand, and that kind of, like, started it eight years ago. I like I say February 9th, I, I stepped out of Centennial, but I kind of say I, my business anniversary is April 8th, which is when I signed the LLC papers. But I didn't make any money for a while after that. April 8th, 2009. <laughs> 2010. Yes. Okay. Eight years in a couple of weeks. Yeah. We'll list your, we'll make sure in the show notes that your uh, speaking schedule is on there. I think if anyone who knows Jennifer, you've probably been following her all around the world with all the speaking that she does, but seeing an archive of it, it will just blow people away. Well, that's one reason why on that speaking page, every speaking opportunity I've ever had is on there. And part of it is for me. So I can see where I've come, where I've come from um, and kind of the progression. It's very impressive. So, so your walk us through a little bit. If we could go back, you know, I think for those listening, right? There's individuals that are out in the community doing great work. There's individuals who are in businesses and who find themselves in the top leadership position and also in that senior executive leadership position. Um, you also help sell a notable, very successful organization in Cincinnati you know, that led to the journey of you being introduced to and meeting Centennial. But from a corporate executive position, you were at the very pinnacle of your HR career. Um, You walk us through a little bit about learnings during that experience. And, you know, both you had a CEO and a president, you were the chief HR officer of that organization, and you went through a successful sale, right? Um, That put you on the other side at some point, but also in a very supportive way. Yeah. Um, Can you walk us through a little bit about that experience? It's like so many things. It's the the interesting story is the story behind the story. Always, always. (laughs) Um, I was very happy, you know, before I went to work at this company, uh, was super happy where I was. You know, I was working in a Japanese automotive organization, you know, kind of lifetime employment. We were a place that people came to benchmark. We definitely were world class in a lot of ways. it was a wonderful place to work, and I was very happy. And I saw an ad in the newspaper back in the day because I was looking, you know, this was when, you know, the Sunday newspaper was the only place to get the job ads. And I had opened the want ads to look for some ads that I had placed just to make sure that they were there. And I noticed a kind of a display ad for a VP of HR 
didn't list the name of the company and said, you know, um, non-union experience, culture change. It was, you know, kind of a boring ad, but uh, it had the dollar amount of the salary listed in there, which was more than what I was making. Okay, there you go. (laughs) And I wasn't really, you know, again, I was happy. It was paid fairly and compensated well. But, you know, it it kind of like hit me in the face as a challenge because it mentioned things again, like non-union and culture change. And then there was this nice dollar amount that was uh, significantly more than what I was making. But the biggest thing for me was it didn't list the company and I couldn't figure out who it was. <laughs> Another challenge. <laughs> so it was through a recruiting firm, um, not, not Centennial. Um, so I was like, my quest in life is to figure out who this company is. I don't want this job, but I want to figure out who the company is. So I'm going to call the firm and see if I can get them to tell me. <laughs> and shocker, surprise, they would not tell me. Um, but they did give me some clues. You know, they told me like it was centrally located. That's not a great clue at all in Cincinnati. (laughs) (laughs) So, so it, all it did was pique my curiosity more. Like I've got to find out who this place is. So sure. I'll come in for an interview. And at the Japanese automotive place that I worked, um, we wore uniforms. We wore their like automotive gas station attendant uniforms. So blue dickies, uh, black and blue and white striped automotive shirt with name patches on it and safety shoes. I wore boots for safety shoes. Um, so for my interview with the executive recruiter, I wore my uniform <laughs> because I was not there to get the job. I was there to get the name of the company. And that was all. <laughs> so, so I literally went in like, I don't even care about what you think about me. I just have enough questions because I want to know who this is. And and for whatever reason, they forgave me that um, <laughs> and said, we want you to meet the CEO. And he's a new CEO, young guy, uh, has been contracted by this company to really turn it around. It's a well-known company, well-established brand, uh, lots of market recognition, makes a lot of money, but uh, is in bad financial straits. And he's been brought on to turn it around. So he's assembling his team. So again, they kind of laid down a challenge and I'm very competitive. And I was like, oh, okay, I want to meet this guy. Um, So I think I still wore my uniform to that interview. Um, But we scheduled an interview in their offices, and I kind of figured out who it was based off of what they told me. And I knew the company did have a not great reputation. Um, I knew of them, but I, you know, knew in terms of employment and the things that I was interested in, it wasn't known as a great place to work. Um, So again, not thinking that I was any way I was going to take the job. I just wanted to meet him and see kind of what the situation was. So I ended up, I went in to meet with him. We were scheduled to talk for an hour. Uh, He had another interview scheduled after me. And uh, we ended up talking two and a half hours and they had to reschedule the person in the lobby that was waiting to talk to him. (laughs) And he was so uh, energetic, very excited about the challenge that he was being given. And he was straight out of business school. So had never, he was in his early thirties, had never had a CEO job, but he had kind of, you know, through his charm and charisma and smarts had met all the right people who were the owners of the companies and of the company. It was privately held by a group of, I I call it local rich people um, who had bought the company to really rescue the brand. Um, You know, they, they didn't want to see this well-known brand be destroyed. And so they had purchased it more in kind of a, we're going to hold on to this, bring somebody in to turn it around, and then hopefully sell it to people who will steward the brand and take care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
him laying all that out to me in the interview did really excite me. I mean, I was coming from a Japanese work environment, Toyota production system, you know, again, world class in terms of quality, certainly team based. Um, we were, you know, had gotten lots of awards for our team, teamwork and team competitions. And so he was wanting to bring that into this organization. And so that's why he was interested in me. And then, you know, I went to interview with the executive team at the facility once they told me who it was. Um, and I remember walking through the factory, and this is a 100-plus-year-old building, multi-story manufacturing, nothing like, you know, brand-new Japanese automotive, shiny, clean uh, environment where everything flowed and charts and graphs everywhere. And I go into this dingy workplace where things are, the windows are broken. Uh, there are people sleeping at their workstations. Uh, there's product all over the floor. And he's just walking me through this plant. The CEO is like, he is so excited that I'm here. And he's like, look at all of this. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at all of this. <laughs> and I'm like, do you do safety training? And he's like, no, that's why we need you. And I'm like, do you have quality center? No, that's why we need you. And I'm like, do these people that are sleeping at the machines actually like their jobs? No, that's why we need you. <laughs> and so <laughs> everything, he was like, that's why we need you. And I think HR is the most important job in the company. And, and I have waited to fill that position last on my team. Hmm because I want it to be the right person. And I think that's you. And I left that day crying. I, I drove away from that facility crying in tears because I was so happy in my job and it was so perfect and we were so wonderful. And I was leaving the exact opposite environment of that. But I felt like this is a greenfield. It's a 140 year old greenfield. It's an opportunity to take everything that I think I've learned in this wonderful Japanese company and to take it to an environment where none of that is in place and to see if I actually have the chops to help try to build that. Um, so I cried and cried and I talked to people and I said, you know, I don't want this job. I don't want to leave my job. So I'm going to do something really kind of wild and radical. And I'm going to throw out a salary amount that is higher than I think they're willing to pay. So when they call, you know, the recruiting firm said he loves you. You know, he wants, he definitely wants you to join him uh, in this kind of mission to turn this company around. He wants you to head up the cultural change. You know, he's going to handle the financial kind of turnaround. And he wants you to do the cultural turnaround. So what is it that it would take to get you there? And I threw out uh, $25,000 more than what I was making, thinking that that would be the deal killer. And I would be able to say, well, it just didn't work out. <laughs> so the recruiter, you know, called me back. Um, and he offered me 35000 more than I was making. And I was like, I called my mom. I was like, I don't want to do this. She's like, Jennifer, I think this is a sign. <laughs> I think that, that somebody in the universe, that, that God is telling you that you need to do this. And so, again, kind of with tears in my eyes, accepted the role. And he sent me a letter um, that I hope I still have. But I'll never forget the line. I want you to be my right-hand partner, my conciliary in turning this business around. And I want you to know that I do think you're the most important hire that I've made. And he lived up to that. And, what, you know, he wasn't perfect. I wasn't perfect. Uh, but he did assemble a great team of really smart people that were super committed to making this business better. Uh, and we worked hard. I mean, that's why, again, I was tired when I mentioned tired earlier. We worked so hard for the goal was to turn around the company and sell it in five years. I don't you know, somebody had kind of put that out there. I did not ask that question in the interview. I did not know that the goal was to sell the company. 
Um, so I'll never forget, you know, a couple weeks after being there, I kept hearing in conversations, when we sell the company, when we sell the company. So I walked into his office one day and I said, you know, I might have forgotten to ask, like, didn't even cross my mind because remember, I didn't want the job to ask what... <laughs> What does it mean? What is the long-term, I, is the long-term goal? goal? I said, when people are talking about selling the company, that's usually not a good thing, right? And he goes, that is a great thing. He said, that's what we're here to do. We are here to make this company so attractive that the right people will want to buy it. And so our turnaround job here is to turn it around financially to get, you know, get us out of debt and get the banks off our back to uh, turn it around culturally so that the, the buyers look at it and say that this is a culture that will continue to work and continue to prosper. And if we sell the company to the right people, then you and I will have done the absolute very best job. He said, so do not fear selling the company. That's the goal. And if we do that, that means you've done well. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have to change some of the way I think, you know. So, uh, you know, it was, the goal was five years. We actually sold the company in two and a half years. Uh, We radically turned it around financially. We ultimately radically turned it around culturally, which was a big challenge. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what makes people want to work. And I learned so much from him about the importance of casting a vision. Again, he was not a perfect leader. He was young. He was impulsive. Um, And sometimes that impulsive worked in your favor, and sometimes it didn't. But he was always honest, uh, even when he failed. He was very willing to admit when he failed. And he built people's trust because he consistently cast a vision of making their lives better. Same same as like, if we sell the company, you've done the right thing uh, to me. But to tell them, he would tell them in all employee meetings and in conversations with them, my job. And again, this was a very negative work environment. Lots of injuries in the factory, uh, high absenteeism rates, uh, a lot of turnover again in the factory, unhappy employees, not a lot of great systems in terms of the employees. And um, their jobs were not, you know, they were not treated well by the the former leaders of the company. Some of the worst kind of a treatment of employees that I've, I've ever seen. And so they were very distrustful of us. You know, we were the new management because they had seen over and over again as the company had been bought and sold over the years, new management after new management after new management. So every time I went somewhere and said something, they're like, oh, you're just the new management. But our CEO did such a great job of he would respond to that not with um, anger or not to tell them they were wrong. He would say, we are here to work together. I'm here to help you. And my goal is to make it so that you don't want to leave here at the end of the day and go home and kick your dog and beat your wife. Now, now, granted, after I got there, I was like, we need to modify that message a bit. <laughs> there's there's some things we might want to talk about in terms of sensitivity right. and establishing culture. Uh, and he was, again, very open to my feedback. But he helped to personalize the vision of turning around the company to them of, I want to make your job better. And if your job is better and you actually like what you do, and many of the employees have been there 25, 35, 45 years, so they were they were ingrained in their dislike of the company and the culture, but they were just waiting for that pension. So he was really trying to win their hearts and minds. And he did that through consistent, honest communication of telling them, I recognize that 
your working conditions are crap. I recognize that it's 110 degrees on the fourth floor in the factory that's on air conditioned, and I'm going to get the money to get air conditioning. That all of the previous, you know, 100 years of, of CEOs have promised you, I'm going to make that happen. And he did, and it cost $450,000 to air condition the factory. But he did, and he made that commitment to them. Uh, he sold it to the, the owners of the company that we needed to make that kind of investment because, number one, that would show that I care in something that matters to you at the core, your working conditions. Number two... I believe that if I make your job better, that you'll help us make a better product and we'll be able to turn this company around. And there's just story after story after story that, you know, from that situation that comes back to a committed leadership team of which I was blessed to be a part of, who really came together around a vision that a leader cast to ultimately make things better for everyone by doing the goal of, you know, most companies creating shareholder value. And by by creating enough value that our owners, again, who had just planned to steward it for a while, were able to select someone that they felt would steward the brand into the future. And the company that we ultimately sold it to still owns it today. It's a Fortune 100 company um, that the brand continues to be a leader in their industry. Outstanding. We talk, we speak with leaders about the importance of getting the right team, right? It's all about getting the right team. It sounds like the group of investors who came into this company assembled the right team and allowed the CEO to assemble what he believed was the right team to accomplish the goals. But transparency in the midst of all of this, it sounds like that authentic leadership is was so important to selling great leaders like you to join the team mm-hmm. and to get people to actually believe and then step up, probably step up their performance in a great way where they were never quite as energized before than to support what was happening there. Oh, yeah. I mean, we saw people who, again, been there 35, 40 years. The, the company was non-union when I got there, but at one time had had five unions and had, you know, the very much still a union type, bad union type culture of us and them. And, and we were able to see people really kind of change and want to participate, want to be a part of a team. I'll never forget. I One of my first things that I did as the new leader is I spent a couple of weeks and I just uh, spent a couple hours every day just walking the facility. It was like 800,000 square feet, 16 buildings, multi-stories. We even had tunnels. And so you could walk. I probably walked for days and still didn't see it all. And so, you know, go into the bowels of places that, you know, people had not been in years and and see things that kind of reflected the culture, like scribblings on the wall and, um, you know, just things that people weren't happy about being there. And you could hide and never be found. Um, and so I I decided, again, coming from a very team-based work environment, I wanted to have small group meetings with employees to get them to know them and to get to know me and and to kind of hear what their issues were. So I would meet with over, you know, again, a couple of months, <clears throat> uh, small groups, maybe 10 or 12 people, small small teams in the factory um, who were working in natural teams around machines, et cetera. And I'll never forget being in a meeting and have a little flip chart. And I think I had my questions like, if I gave you a magic wand, what is one thing you would change about the company? And they they had all kinds of answers. They didn't need a magic wand. Um, <laughs> it was like, what do you like about working here? You know, uh, you know, those kinds of questions, just two or three questions, just to really kind of see what some of the consistent issues were. And I will never forget standing up with me you know, in front of my little flip chart and in front of a team, again, a natural team that worked around a machine. And I said something about being a part of a team. And and a person raised her hand and she said, you keep using the word team. What does that actually mean? 
And I kind of looked at her. I'm like, is she punking me? You know, what is happening here? Is, is she trying to trip me up? She literally did not have a concept of what being a part of a team in their environment was when she was sitting there with her teammates. Um, so I had to, again, you know, my I'm kind of sarcastic and maybe my natural tendency would have been to reply with, uh, uh, these are the people sitting around you. And instead, I was like, that's interesting. You know, tell me more when you say, what is a team? What does it mean to you? And to hear the discussion of uh, they were anti, you know, they didn't know it, but they were anti-team. They were all in it for themselves. Um, they didn't trust anybody, including the people that work next to them. They certainly didn't trust management. Um, so I left that meeting going, again, this is a greenfield. I have a chance, you know, this is a, a, a challenge here. Um, and then in another meeting, kind of, you know, again, being in front of that flip chart and, and asking kind of like, uh, I think the question was, what could we do better? And, and a person that, you know, one person said, oh, you could give me more benefits, you could give me more pay. And the third person's like, we could have a union. And again, in HR, that's kind of like my allergy, you know, I, I in my, my body, I'm sure, uh, recoiled, but I said, tell me more. Why do you think you need a union? Well, we need somebody that cares about us. We need somebody that speaks up for our needs. We need somebody that listens to us. You know, all of these things that she believed that having been in the union before would bring um, bring to them if they were able to get another union. And I said, you know, I listened and I wrote down the things that she said on the flip chart. And I said, you know, I appreciate you sharing that with me. Thank you for trusting me enough to tell me what what you feel would make this place better. And here's what, you know, I tried to model after my CEO that I really could see was setting vision. And I said, here's what I want you to, to know. When you say that you need a union because you would like to have all of these things, I, I want to tell you that that's why I believe that I'm here. I want you to feel like you have all of those things because of the leadership team that we have in place, that we will hear you, that we are advocating for you, that we want things that are good for you in terms of pay and, and benefits and working conditions. And that's going to be something that takes time. It's not going to happen overnight, but I'm committed to making your life and your work life better. And my goal is that in a year from now or two years from now, I want to come back to you and I want to say, Vrishana, do you still think that you need a union. And I hope that your answer will be no. And so I cast a little bit of my own vision there in front of that kind of hostile crowd. They were they were pretty hostile. And, and Vershana was never a perfect employee. Uh, she was always that kind of uh, voice of the people who would speak up and, you know, sometimes take people in another direction. But uh, you know, maybe a year or so later, we had an all-employee meeting where we were maybe sharing some news that wasn't great or trying to make a change that people were resisting. And and Vershana stood up in that meeting of all employees and said, hey, people, we need to listen to Jennifer. She's here trying to make our life better. And I like what I see so far. And that's the kind of stuff, still brings tears to my eyes. That's the kind of stuff you're like, I I won something today. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. My my job here is actually working. <laughs> you know, and I wasn't perfect. They didn't always stand up and say that because again, we were we made a ton of change. We had to in order to turn things around culturally and financially, and not all of it was well received. But we sold. Uh, you know, I say sold in a not a, a manipulative way. We sold a lot of really drastic change to them. 
because we gained their trust. That's what enabled it. And they were like, I hate this idea. I don't like it. It doesn't sound good for me, but you're telling me it's what we need to do. So I'm going to trust you and follow you. So that in and of itself, what a conversation, right? About especially a leadership team that puts people at the very top. You know, you shared that the CEO said, you're, this is my most important role. You're my most important asset to get this, create the culture, change everything, knowing him and how one, how smart he is and how convincing he is. Um, it's, I'm going to mention something there when you say that people were most important. It's, again, another interesting piece of that role within the first couple of weeks of being there. I was coming from a Japanese environment where people truly were first. We made so many decisions as an organization um, with the first question being, how does this affect the people? You know, we, we at many times in the automotive industry, we didn't lay people off. Uh, we kept people working even during some downturns in the automotive at significant cost to the company. So coming from an environment where people were truly first, HR had definitely a seat at the table right by the CEO. And so I'm coming into this environment. The guy's telling me I'm the most important hire and HR is important. And I kept coming into his office going, we need to do this because it's the right thing for the people. I need you to give me money so that I can do this because it's the right thing for the people. And he looked at me one day again, just so many great learning opportunities there. He looked at me, he said, Jennifer, I know you're coming from an environment where people were first. And that's why I hired you. But here, we have a job to do and it's to turn around this company financially, and culturally, but financially first. And he said, here, cash is first. And I need you to start coming in here and talking to me about cash. (laughs) I love the people and I appreciate the people. But our job here is to focus on cash. And that was such great advice because that, you know, I thankfully didn't take that as he didn't care about the people because I knew that wasn't true. But I I was able to really kind of step up my HR leadership by not walking in all the time going, this is just the right thing to do, or this is the best thing for the people. And trying to make it an emotional decision, I very quickly learned from him, I had to come in with data. I had to come in and say, this is what it's going to cost us, and this is what it's going to save us. This is the opportunity that we're going after, and here's how much it's going to cost us to get there, but the ROI on the back end is going to be this. And again, some of the things that I pitched and sold to the executive team um, cost the company more money. We actually added benefits at significant cost to the company. But we in HR ran the numbers into the ground. We had Excel spreadsheets that I wish I had today and could frame and it would wallpaper my house um, of all of the numbers behind why if we spent X hundreds of thousands of dollars to increase the benefits for our employees, that it was going to pay off on the back end by you know creating something else. And so his advice it wasn't people first, it was cash first in that situation, didn't deter me or in his mind deter me from making sure we were making the right decisions for people or valuing the people in our business, but that we were presenting the people decisions in a business context. I I wanted to draw out that story intentionally because this is what makes you so effective, inspiring thousands of people, millions of people around the world, right? That you have a business, you have a business mind, and you've even early and earlier in my career helped coach me to think even more about the business and the real implications of culture, employment branding, 
you know, employee experience. Um, but how do you grow a successful business with a group of really getting the right team around the table? You've done so many of the, all of the elements that people today are trying to accomplish, right? Whether that's taking a family business, like in our case, to a next generation, whether that's building up a company and acquiring or building up a company to successfully sell, or just making sure that we create tremendous return and where employees want to be to help us accomplish those goals. And I, I know that comes out every time you talk, right? No matter what the topic is, no matter who the audience is. You know, I was looking the um, some of the really fun cities, Jennifer, that I picked up on. You've had the opportunity to speak in Melbourne, Australia recently, mm -hmm. um, Cayman Islands, um, Istanbul, um, Hollywood's always fun. To yes. <laughs> You've spoken Hollywood. <laughs> and of course, probably thousands of times across the Cincinnati region, um, you know, Chicago, Minneapolis. Um, what's the most fun location that you've had the opportunity to go and speak at? Well, that is that is a horrible question, Mike, because I don't have an answer. It's <laughs> um, no, a great question. I should All of have the an above. answer. <laughs> you know, I just really I'm at a phase in my life, and I'm I'm blessed to be there. Um, and again, it's it's not my first rodeo in terms of my job, but um, I'm at a place where I have the ability and the opportunity to travel. And I love to meet new people, to see new places, and I kind of have a little bit of wanderlust. So, you know, early on in my career, I would, you know, kind of joke that I would, I would speak anywhere for frequent flyer miles. Um, <laughs> it costs a little bit more today, <laughs> but, but I love the idea of being in front of somebody I've never talked, you know, or a group that I've never talked to before. And that could be in Fargo, North Dakota, or that could be in Istanbul, Turkey. Um, you know, those are opportunities to hear how the world works all around the world. You know, I have some uh, views and opinions, obviously, and some, some leadership stuff that I'm sharing when I'm talking to people, but I, I love to also hear back from them kind of what their challenges and issues are. And, you know, if the opportunity presents itself, I try to schedule additional time so I can get out and um, put myself in really weird and crazy situations and mm -hmm. <laughs> see mm -hmm. the world. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So share with us a little bit about um, if we could talk through the transition and the addition of being the CEO of Disrupt HR. Um, you know, so let's, what are you trying to accomplish with Disrupt HR? What do you feel like has been accomplished? And what do you hope continues to be accomplished through that venture? Yeah. And I think this is another example, a kind of serendipitous example of um, connecting with the right people, people with vision and people uh, who are able to kind of see beyond what I see. I, I've been told that uh, I shouldn't describe myself this way, but I think it's, I still think it's fairly accurate. I am not always the visionary. I'm not the person who sees out three years, five years, or really what would happen, you know, what could happen next. I like to be around, I need to be around people like that to help me see the future, like my former CEO and like my partner with Disrupt HR. Um, because once I can see the future, then I can jump on board and I can make it happen. And so, you know, Disrupt HR started in 2013. 
2015 here in Cincinnati because I had connected with a young entrepreneur here in Cincinnati, a guy named Chris Ostich. Um, just when he was out building his business and trying to network and meet people, and he wasn't an HR guy, but he was uh, he had founded an HR technology company. So he was trying to meet people in the human resources community and um, get to know them and get to know their issues because he had an idea for a product um, to help with embeddedness and retention and, and was trying to make that work. And so I met him, I think, you know, before he even had a website up, but he was out kind of like shaking hands and kissing babies and <laughs> I disliked him. And so that was, uh, you know, for a couple years, we tried to meet, you know, every so often and I would, you know, be available if he had a phone call and wanted to chat about what he was seeing in the industry. Um, and we were having a lunch meeting just down the road from here one day, you know, one of our twice a year meet get togethers. And, and he, I love about him is he always has like a little notebook and, and you can start, you know, eating your sandwich at lunch and the conversation starts and immediately he gets his notebook out and he starts scribbling. Oh, that's a great idea. You know, we should do that. That'll make you a million dollars. He's always like, everything's going to be a million dollars. I love that. I love to be around people I like, like the that. way he thinks. Yes. <laughs> so we were chatting and over lunch and, uh, you know, he had his little notebook out. Everything I said was brilliant, which you could let you like to be around people who make you feel like everything you say is brilliant and they write it down and he said you know what what is it you're out you're speaking and my business was starting to really grow and he said what is it that you kind of want to do you know what's something you really want to do and I said you know I speak at a lot of conferences I'm blessed to speak at a lot of conferences and events in the human resources and recruiting space and I'm grateful for that and uh, love that opportunity. And and the thing is, I hear a lot of the same content at the conferences, and I see a lot of the same speakers, myself included. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that that should necessarily change, because I do think the conference organizers are meeting the needs of the people that, you know, what the people in their audience want to hear. But I feel like there's an opportunity to maybe do something different and have a different type of event. And one of my goals is that someday, you know, I'm the kind of person that says someday, I don't say three years now and someday I'd like to have an event here in Cincinnati that's that's different from a traditional event for HR and recruiting that you know we bring in some fun speakers and we do something that's maybe a little more more fun or a little bit edgier and I said I'm just kind of thinking about someday I'd like to do that and he he wrote it down in his notebook and he's like that's a great idea you can make a million dollars you know <laughs> <laughs> um, and he left that meeting as really good entrepreneurs and visionaries do and he didn't just let that be an idea he actually started thinking about how to make it happen uh, and I left that meeting and went back to my day job, you know, <laughs> and didn't think about it anymore. And and he and his team at the company at the time was called Black Book HR, um, came back to me and he said, you know, I'm the community organizer for Ignite events in Cincinnati, which Ignite is a global kind of community speaking opportunity for people where you give five minute talks with 20 slides that advance every 15 seconds. He said, I'm the community organizer for Cincinnati. And I've been thinking, why don't we take that Ignite format and take it into the HR space and do that here. Have your event in Cincinnati and we'll call it Disrupt HR. And I was like, that's amazing. You go, take my idea and run. And I mean, you take it and run with it because you made it happen. <laughs> um, you are the the founder of, of Disrupt HR. Um, and so we did have an event December 2013 here in Cincinnati. And it was different because we had a local politician that was one of the speakers. We had a, a, rest, a Vietnamese restaurant owner. We had an HR leader from Procter & Gamble. We had my friend Laurie Rudiman. Uh, we had local HR, uh, now global HR, uh, famous person Steve Brown. You know, So we had a really good mix. We had a, a leader who owned a, a product, productivity company um, give talks about work 
that weren't talking about, you know, FMLA or compliance or legal issues or, or um, how to communicate with difficult people. We had talks on awesomeness and, um, you know, why not you? Why not you stepping up? And Chris talked about big data bull. And, um, you know, there it was a different vibe. It was fun. We had it at a brewery. Uh, there was cornhole. There was ping pong. There were picnic tables. I was there. You were there. <laughs> uh, and people had fun and they loved it. And a, f- a friend of mine had been in town. She was she lives in Denver and she was in town d- with business. And I said, you got to come to Disrupt HR Cincinnati. And so she attended. And after the event, she was like, that was amazing. Can I do this in Denver? And we were like, sure. You know, Chris said, we'll help you give you the materials, you know, help you get set up. And then I think they put the videos online from the Cincinnati and Denver events. And a friend of mine from Toronto reached out and said, hey, we'd love to do this in Toronto. And Chris Chris and his team said, sure, here's the stuff. And and then somebody from Vancouver said, we'd like to do it in Vancouver. And then over the next probably couple of years, it was just like a city here, a city there. And the Black Book HR team kind of helped facilitate that. And then in mid-2015, Chris founded another company called Listener, L-I-S-N-R, which it's very, very uh, techie stuff, very cool technology, uh, data over your phone or something like that. And they're doing all kinds of cool things with it. And he's going to be, he is going to be a multimillionaire when they someday sell that. Um, so he was moving on to listener from, from Black Book HR, which is now a company called Town Metrics. Um, and he sent an email and said, I'm going to be doing this new thing. And so I reached out to him. And I said, hey, with your new thing, it's not in the HR space. What's going to happen with Disrupt HR? And he goes, why don't we make it a thing? And I said, let's do that. So we formed an official partnership in uh, mid-2015 and built out the website, uh, really started, you know, sharing the videos online, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on social media, on the blog, on the website, disrupthr.co. Um, and so that just kind of like accelerated people reaching out to me and saying, hey, I want to bring it to my town and I want to bring it to my town. And I saw a video that somebody forwarded me. How do I get involved with this? And um, it really, you know, people ask me what the strategic plan is or was for Disrupt HR and it, there never was or is one, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't know that that's a bad thing. I think it's more of a movement. Um, I am a volunteer with it, just like everybody else who organizes events. I probably volunteer about 40 hours a week with Disrupt HR, but uh, I love seeing people who are speaking on stage, again, five minutes, 20 slides, 15 seconds for everybody that have never spoken at a conference or event, maybe never would be invited to, but they have something to say or they want to challenge themselves. And some of them have something really interesting to say. And there have been some great talks given at Disrupt HR. And some of them, it's maybe not so interesting, or maybe they didn't give a great talk, but they challenged themselves. And I just read a comment from one of the events um, uh, recently where somebody said, you know, we high-fived all the speakers when they came off the stage, even if they weren't great, because they did it. Because they achieved something. And I love that. So now, as of today, we are at 123 licensed cities and 28 countries. So I've had the opportunity through Disrupt HR to talk to people who want to organize events in places like, and and they not all have come through yet, but like Bali and uh, Pakistan and Namibia and, you know, uh, Timbuktu. uh, What was another one? Bemidji, Minnesota. I was like, you have got to make this Bemidji, Minnesota happen. I don't even, I can't even find it on the map. (laughs) Uh, She wasn't able to make it happen yet, but I get to talk to people all over the world. And it's interesting. I always say, how'd you hear about Disrupt HR? And I love hearing, you know, either saw a video or somebody forwarded them something or a friend attended. Um, But what's interesting to me is what 
the, I mean, I'll say, well, why are you interested in doing this? And probably 100% of the time, people say, we're so far behind here in HR, no matter where they are, in the US and Australia and in, you know, uh, Europe, they're like, we're way behind. And I'm like, if everybody's behind, does that mean that we're all in the same place? Are we all just trying to figure out what's new, what's next? Uh, or maybe even more likely is we're all still trying to figure out how to do what is current well. <laughs> but but we think we're behind because somebody else says the future of HR is this or that. So uh, it's helped me to see that we're all just really trying to do the best we can. And, and we do need to kind of be looking to what other people are doing and learning and, and hearing from people who have ideas and implementing those things in our workplace. But um, it, nobody's truly, truly got it figured out what's new, what's next. I love your job title as CEO, as Chief Excitement Officer. Yeah, when Chris and I formed the partnership, I'm like, hey, uh, I had to put a title on the uh, Articles of Incorporations. What my t- what's my title? And he goes, you're the CEO. And I was like, I don't want to be the CEO. I want to be the Chief Excitement Officer. <laughs> he was like, done. <laughs> yeah. So in just over two and a half years, 123 licensed cities, 28 countries. Well, five years, I guess. If you, well, almost five years since the beginning. Okay, Two and a half years since we kind of made it a thing. Made yeah. it a thing. You know, and again, I think the, Jennifer, what you inspire people is that type of movement, right? Casting the vision, building, aligning passions and excitement and the operations to put all of that together. You know, to you, you say everything somewhat relaxed and but it changes lives right that good thing for chris to be taking notes uh, when jennifer was speaking (laughs) i've learned to do the same again the (laughs) takeaway from this you know both of the the situations that we talked about my my ceo that was a visionary and chris is surrounding yourself with people who compliment you you know i've been blessed to have people you know in my network again i kind of recognize that i need to be around people who are seeing into the future who are thinking about what's new what's next and then they also need me uh somebody who can say okay if that's what's new what's next uh here's how we make that happen here's how we make this a thing or i'm going to work really really hard to make your vision a reality and and sometimes you know i have visions every now and then too um but more often than not, it's about making sure that you're partnering up with or that you have people on your team that are different than you, that uh, bring different skills to the table, that complement your skills in a lot of ways and in some ways challenge you. So what's next for oh, well, Jennifer McClure? I've just spent an hour telling you I'm not a visionary, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> but challenging people on what's new, what's next. Yeah. What's next for Jennifer McClure? Well, this year I, I took a different tack with my goal setting. You know, I, I, I am a business person by, at heart. And so my goal setting has always usually been around numbers and dollars. And next year I'm going to make, you know, $3 billion. And that's, you know, a pie in the sky goal. So this year I said, you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just try to put some things out there and actually make some of these goals that I've had uh, a reality. And one of those goals was a podcast. Uh, You know, I have the opportunity to speak on stages, and I love that, and I hope that never goes away. Um, But I also have had a blog, or I have a website that has a blog, and I've seen the ability uh, to really reach people with that, even though I wasn't a frequent blogger. I'm active on social media, and for me, that has been a really great way to connect with people and to build relationships and to share, you know, my version of, quote, thought leadership, um, and to more importantly, learn from other people that are smarter than me and doing cool things. But for me, I started listening to podcasts about three years ago. And and now I've gone from being a blog junkie to a podcast junkie. And I just really think that it's a great forum to uh, 
learn from interesting people to feel that personal connection with having them in your earbuds uh, or earballs, as one of my podcasters says. Um, and I've for three years now said, I want to do a podcast. I want to do a podcast. And uh, for three years, everybody around me supporting me has said, you do a podcast, Jennifer. And I'm like, I'm going to do it. But I just never did it because for a lot of reasons, uh, I get hung up on things and, and I get hung up on things like the name of my podcast. <laughs> and I never found anything that I felt like really would allow me to talk about the things I want to talk about. You know, I don't want to talk about just HR. I don't want to just talk about business. I don't want to just talk about whatever, you know, to, to niche it down. And so, um, you know, I wanted this year to be the year I finally started my podcast. And so um, I did do that. And, and a month ago launched Impact Makers. And it's just five episodes in as of the time of this recording. But Already, I mean, I've been brought to tears twice this week from the feedback, not because somebody was like, oh, you're amazing, you're great. It was more just the nature of the feedback. You know, I, I walked into the barn where I have my horses. I'm a horse person and uh, board my horses at a, a training stable and walked in one day this week. And one of the moms who works in a school, so she's not, you know, quote, a business person, she's she works in a school, um, stopped me and said, I love your podcast. I'm really enjoying listening to your podcast. This last episode that you had, you know, you shared three ways that I can make an impact. And I'm a leader in my organization. And, and I've thought about how I can Im incorporate those things into my day. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is this is why I wanted to start a podcast now to have the opportunity to connect with people. You know, she wouldn't have probably read my blog before. She's connected to me on Facebook. So that's how she knows I have a podcast. But to think that, you know, a, a mom that works in a school would listen to my podcast um, and learn from the cool people that I know is super exciting. And then to see, you know, people tweeting about it or sending me an email and saying your interview, you know, they might be in a completely different field, but your interview with William Tenkov really resonated with me. It helped me to see, you know, my day or my life differently. And so my goal with Impact Makers is to talk to interesting people who are making a difference in the world in all kinds of ways. So for me, that that was the the path that I needed. I want to talk about business, but I want to talk about life. I want to talk about how I can um, help people create careers that they love and lives that matter. And for me, Impact Makers is the focus this year, and that's what's new and what's next. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for that. Thank you for all of your for your friendship, most importantly, um, but your inspiration to me, your coaching, you know, hold the accountability that you and I have had over the last several years of what's next and what's going to be happening. Yeah, what are you your have goals? been one of those people going, Jennifer, just start the podcast. <laughs> there you go. I believe in you. I believe in you. We hope those listening today um, have gained so much value out of this conversation. I look forward to having you here again um, and maybe even a series of us just diving into various topics. Um, you know, our goal with the Talent Magnet Institute podcast is to help people succeed in leadership, business, community, and life. And um, certainly you're doing that in a major way and in a global way. Uh, so thank you so much for being here today. Well, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to come back and see the people at Centennial. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial. Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Sound Press, produced by Chris Medine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. 
music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine, and myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. We are recorded in Greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We're supported by our listeners from all around the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is part of the Talent Magnet Institute and Centennial. You can reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Mike Sipple Jr. Find us in your favorite podcast app, or you can visit us online at talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com to subscribe, leave a review, and share with a colleague. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.